1: I'm John Fort, anchor and technology reporter for CNBC Business News. You're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast.
0: If you're passionate about something as a career, stick with it. Um, you know, the economy will go up and down, so just don't don't bail out. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, at a personal level, persistence. Persistence certainly does pay off. And I think being able to, you know, weather that storm and then be able to um, you know, look back now. I think it's 17 years since that that bubble burst, yeah. um, and now to be in such a great place, you know, where we're seeing you know problems like cybersecurity being solved with technologies around machine learning, and the company I'm with just growing so very quickly. Uh, it makes me really happy that I I just stuck with it and was persistent.
1: Today, she sits at the helm of a promising cybersecurity company. But first, Nicole Egan had to survive the dot com bust. Egan is CEO of Darktrace, a startup that battles hackers using software that gets smarter over time. Invented by mathematicians and former British intelligence operatives, the technology, much like a human immune system, looks for signs of odd behavior in a client's network. Egan and Darktrace are on the cutting edge, not only in security, but also in a gender-balanced tech workforce. Egan says half of her employees are women. She knows how unusual that is, having operated in Silicon Valley through booms and busts as an enterprise tech worker, a venture capitalist, and now as an executive. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business to entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play, and once you've done that, share the wealth. Nicole Egan sat down with Fort Knox to share lessons from efforts that worked and efforts that didn't. Here's Nicole Egan.
0: Well, I had a a dual major in marketing and computer science, and I actually first uh, worked by building and architecting customer systems for investment banks on Wall Street.
1: Hmm. So where were you in school with that double major?
0: Uh, That was actually at Montclair University. So I grew up in... Oh, wow.
1: I live in Montclair. uh,
0: There you go. I grew (laughs) up in New Jersey, so that's where I I got my start. I actually grew up in a town called Lake of New Jersey.
1: Okay. So you did that double major. Did you know what you wanted to do with it?
0: At that time, I didn't. I um, had a a father who was very influential uh, in terms of getting me interested in computers. In fact, he brought us uh, a IBM PC, the very first model of PC that came out.
1: Okay.
0: uh, Dating myself now, (laughs) but uh, yeah. Yeah. So he he brought that home, and I think as soon as my keys hit the keyboard on that, I I was relatively hooked, and uh, that's what you know kind of got me started along the path in technology. Um, And then from there, you know, worked at that first company doing the custom software in Wall Street. We used to write the software in Oracle. And, in fact, I started working closely with Oracle and their customers. And Oracle approached me and said, would you mind moving to California? And I have to say, you know, it was um, a passion I had in terms of moving to Silicon Valley. So I took the opportunity and moved to the West Coast. And when was that? That would have been in 1991.
1: Okay, so Oracle pretty well established by then, pretty intense culture.
0: A very intense culture, although it was quite interesting. By California standards, it's extremely intense culture. But because I was coming out of a Wall Street culture, I guess for me, um, it still felt um, appropriate. I mean, uh, Wall Street, of course, is, is quite an aggressive place to work. And so in general, California companies tend to be a little more... Um, Let's say huggy. Um, so, so actually, um, I actually liked Oracle's culture. I thought, you know, obviously Larry Ellison had such immense uh, vision. In fact, it was a really interesting time in that I was able to travel the world for Oracle, uh, helping them launch the Oracle database on a global basis. I think we were at Oracle 7 at that point. Yeah. But it was also interesting because Larry was at the stage where he had a vision of patching, packaging up the Oracle database and delivering it on what he called media servers and set top boxes. And if we fast forward now, look at Netflix, uh, Larry was just clearly way ahead of his
1: time. Yeah, and I guess in a number of of different cases, either he had ideas, you know, the network computer uh, that that so many people were thinking about at the time, cloud computing, pushing up against that. Um, So as you were traveling the world, how did that influence your perspective on technology, maybe the different kinds of challenges that customers are focused on in different places?
0: Well, I think the, the thing by traveling the world that really opened my eyes up to is uh, when it comes to technology, it is a global marketplace. In fact, if you go to some place, um, let's say Japan, um, I could actually follow a lot of what was being talked about, mainly because when you get to technical terminology, it all comes back to English. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, in terms of differences, What it did stand out to me is how people perceived America and American companies and technology. So that was just um, an interesting perspective to get. I think it also
1: influenced me. How was that?
0: Well, I think if I go back in time, I believe um, Bill Clinton was president at that time. And the United States actually was very well respected on a, a world basis. And so it was actually a very favorable time to be doing business around the world. Um, and I, you know, I think before that, I never thought, wow, how much you know, politics and leaders can actually influence kind of the perception and impact the technology industry. But I also think a lesson it taught me is that a lot of startups, to me, wait too long to go global. In fact, you can grow to a very large size just by doing business in California, in the United States, Mm. before you ever kind of hop the pond and go over, let's say, to Europe or to Asia. And uh, it was interesting, is when we founded Darktrace, one of the things we did is we actually started it in the UK, and we came to the US very quickly, and then to Asia very quickly, and I, I... didn't think about it, because to me, my experience at Oracle made that normal and second nature. But when I've actually now taken a look at a lot of other startups, um, they don't go
1: global so quickly. And I I guess maybe in the early 90s, it was harder to go global quickly than it is now. But Darktrace has some interesting origins, the technology coming out of um, some secretive places. How did you get involved with that?
0: So it did come from very interesting places. In fact, the founders kind of came from three different camps. The first camp was British intelligence. So some of the founders came from GCHQ and MI5, and um, they uh, kind of, uh, in an enduring way, um, those are called the spooks. So they're the the spies, so Mm -hmm. to speak, Um, but very good in cyber. And what was important about that is they had been fighting the battle at the nation-state level. And now the nation states that used to just combat each other at a government level were starting to go after the private sector companies. So that was really important to understand how to, you know what the challenges were of fighting these nation states um, and state-sponsored attacks. The second group were mathematicians from the University of Cambridge, and they, they were leading the wave on machine learning. In fact, if you go back uh, in time, Alan Turing was actually kind of the father of machine learning way Mm -hmm. back when in in Britain. So that was kind of an interesting dimension. And then finally, we brought business people. In fact, I was uh, on the venture capital side and uh, listened to the initial Dark Trays pitch and was part of putting the groups together and and helping them raise money and build the business.
1: So you're on the venture capital side, and I guess the pitch sounded so good you wanted to be part of the company. How did you get into venture capital? We missed that chapter.
0: Sure. So um, I had spent quite a bit of time uh, working in both startup companies. I'd done several startups. Um, One of the things I learned with startups is the economy has a big part to do in it, as well as the technology.
1: Okay, which economy Uh, did you start launching into?
0: Yeah, so I actually uh, went into the startups uh, area probably in the late 90s. And everything was looking really good around 1999 (laughs) uh, when I was at a dot-com called e-stamp. And then lo and behold, uh, March 2000 came, and the bubble
1: certainly burst and burst hard. Yeah, we're sitting at the NASDAQ, and I recall that uh, the NASDAQ got hit pretty hard uh, in March. And then in September, I remember Apple reported earnings in September, and boy, the bottom really started falling out then.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, that really caused a number of companies to close their doors. And it also um, meant a lot of people in the tech industry lost their fortunes, myself included. And so I think, you know, that was um, a very challenging and difficult time. And I actually saw a lot of um, people who, you know, were impacted by the dot-com kind of bubble burst leave the tech industry. Um, In fact, just for all different kinds of careers. Um, And for me, I I think if you really truly believe that technology is a long-term play and a long-term game, and it's something that you're absolutely passionate about, um, I wasn't ready to just leave it.
1: How hard did you get hit personally? Did you have, I mean, of course you had professional skin in the game. You've been working for this startup. You had focused your energy on that. Um, Did you have a lot of your own money in it? How was that working?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I had uh, my own money in it, and obviously, um, I had actually worked for the company for four years at that time, this company, Eastamp, and it's always fully vested. So, you know, it lost literally tens of millions of dollars. But I think what actually, in some ways, hurt even more is, if you remember back to that time, if you were part of a, a startup, you were um, allowed to offer friends and family equity. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, you offer friends and family equity, and, and they put money in, too. And you're thinking you're, you're helping your friends and family out because you're giving them this great upside opportunity. And then when the world comes crashing down, that, of course, ended up not being the case. So I think, you know, that was a, a tough lesson learned. And it, it kind of opens your eyes to say maybe uh, investing is, is really good for professionals um, and not just, uh, uh, you know, having friends and family come into that stock, especially in that kind of turbulent market.
1: Right. To so put a finer point in, on it. What really is the lesson learned? Because, yeah, that's a rough scenario, but there are cycles. And I'm sure, you know, when friends see your trajectory of success and hear you're involved in something, and family, they'll want to be involved in it again. Memories are short, or people are, you know, yes. different people. So what's the lesson you learned? Do you have a rule about that? Or a well, guideline? Well,
0: I, I think for me, it was, you know, stay with your passion. You know, for me, I was passionate about technology I mean, as much as I I felt for the loss of, you know, um, money and value in that, the sadder part to me was actually there was a lot of really innovative and great fundamental technology that got put on shelves after that and Mm. never saw the light of day again. So I think, you know, that was part of the lesson is it's, you know, fundamental technology is is really important. Um, I think passion, if you're passionate about something as a career – Stick with it. Um, you know, the economy will go up and down, so just don't don't bail out. Uh, and and I guess you know, at a personal level, persistence, persistence certainly does pay off. And I think being able to, you know weather that storm and then be able to um, you know, look back now, I think it's seventeen years since that that bubble burst. Yeah. Um, and now to be in such a great place, you know where we're seeing, you know, problems like cybersecurity being solved with technologies around machine learning and the company I'm with just growing so very quickly. Uh, it makes me really happy that I, I just stuck with it and was persistent.
1: What about the lesson in separating the professional from the personal?
0: Yes, I, I think from a, an investment perspective, you know, you, you gain a lot of respect for um, you know investing as a, as a profession. And I think we've, you know, back then there was a lot of money um, trying to be made or speculated on day trading, right? And I, I think, um, you know, those those times have changed um, somewhat as well.
1: I want to understand a little bit about your mindset and how it came to be. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that your dad brought home an IBM PC. Was he into technology or why do you think he did that? And how did that fit into the way he tried to put different, either objects or opportunities in front of the family. Yeah,
0: he was, my father actually uh, was magazine publishing and he spent most of his career at institutional investor. Yeah. And he really felt that um, this combination of computers and marketing was going to be the future and in fact had a lot of influence on on my major. Um, I also had a passion in dance, so I'm like, what about a dance major? He's like, that sounds like a minor you know, not a major. So I think that had a lot to do with it. But also, he was very passionate about inventors and scientists. So I remember at a very early age, he used to tell stories about um, someone by the name of Hugo Gernsback. And Hugo Gernsback, I I guess, was born probably in the very early 1900s. And and he was... uh, actually one of the early inventors of things like radar, he wrote a lot of science fiction. Um, and so I got very interested, you know, through that. And you said, you know, what objects did my father put in front of me in, in, besides the PC? Um, I, I think some of my earliest readings were um, something called Radio Electronics Magazine, which was, you know, written by Hugo Gernsback. Um, and then uh, we were fortunate in that we had um, a family friend who actually um, became the wife of Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs wow. kind of hit our radar before he hit the world's radar. Right. And my father was very passionate then about Apple in the very early days and desktop publishing and how that was revolutionizing the publishing industry. Um, so I, I think all of those kind of, you think back to all the conversations you have in your youth and how they definitely can have an influence on you.
1: We're still having conversations about the culture and girls in science and... Uh, I was talking to Alexandra Labenthal for the podcast uh, a, a bit ago, and she was saying that for her, having an all-girls school experience with just lots of affirmation, uh, building that, it was really important before she got to college. It's interesting to me that we're still having what, what feels to me like the same kind of conversation around girls in science, that we were having 20-plus... 25, 30 years ago when I was in school. Um, what's your feeling about the environment that you had, how the teachers and the boys in math and science classes interacted with you, what your self esteem level was like there?
0: Yeah, I, I, um, I really am one of those um, kind of maybe strange people who actually really liked school. And especially um, liked math, and I do think back to just um, we all have teachers who I think stand out, you know, in our minds. And one of mine was uh, the physics teacher. He taught physics and calculus too. And um, you know, I think he just had a and a, you know gave me a lot of support and a lot of confidence in my skills, you know, in, in math. But I think it was maybe part of it is being on the forefront of when computers were really coming to be and being more commonplace. Um, There wasn't anyone who had an advantage kind Mm -hmm. of, I I guess, to me, we were all learning it for the first time. So when you went to computer lab in high school for the first time, it was quite equal. You know, no one had a leg up on anyone else. And so for me, I guess I...
1: If anything, maybe you had a leg up because you had one at home. Exactly.
0: So I I guess from my perspective, I I never gave it that much thought because for me, um, we were all starting to learn computers at the same time. Uh, and uh, then I guess when I, I did hit the tech profession, you show up at things like you know technology conferences and realize you're, you're outnumbered by quite a few. And I think it's interesting. It's improved over time. But now we have a similar issue with cybersecurity. If you go to the cybersecurity world and, and see cybersecurity events, uh, there's actually only 11% of cyber professionals are women. Um, so you know being CEO of a of a cyber defense company has been quite interesting. And I, the nice thing I guess we've seen is, um, and I'm, I'm hoping some of it's because I'm a woman CEO, we hire a lot of college graduates, and our company is actually equal numbers of male and female. So we're actually 50-50. Across 50, 50, all job categories? Across all job categories. You know, we have women mathematicians, women machine learning experts, uh, women threat analysts, as well as, you know, uh, women salespeople. So it's, it's really across the board. I know a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, yes, we see women in things like human resources and marketing. In our case, we actually have a, a lot of women mathematicians and, and cyber threat analysts as well.
1: And around how many employees do you have now? We actually have 400 employees. So how do you think that happened?
0: You know, it's interesting as uh, I often get asked, there's a lot of conversation about diversity right now. And uh, people are asking, you know, do you have certain hiring stats or goals? Is is this something that you report onto the board regularly? Um, For us, it it kind of happened naturally. And I'm thinking we do um, hire college graduates. Um, The bulk of our new hires are actually fresh out of university. And part of it could be we're at this intersection of two of the hottest areas, you know, cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. So there's a lot of interest from top students from top universities in getting into that area. In fact, sometimes I would look around and at the college job fairs when we first started Darktrace, I would actually attend them myself and, and do the recruiting. And it was myself and you'd have a couple like drone companies and a couple robot companies going after the same people. But uh, luckily, cyber and AI was a, a cool enough combination that people wanted to come work for us.
1: So if you don't have a system in place that has helped you get to the point of being 50-50 gender-wise, would it surprise you if that changed all of a sudden, one way or the other? If you know your hiring started going 90% male, would you know what to do?
0: Gosh, well, um, at the rate we're hiring, um, you know, we, we kind of keep our eye on it. But uh, so far, it's, it's maintained. And one thing I have noticed that might be interesting where it it starts to go maybe even more towards women. When when I go to artificial intelligence conferences, there's more of a mix of almost equal women and men. Hmm. And I haven't kind of dug deeply enough into it, but I notice when I speak on panels in that environment or when I look out in the room, it's much more balanced. And part of me thinks it could be Because as we go into this world of, and we're very much still in the early days of artificial intelligence in terms of practical applications and businesses being built on it, Mm -hmm. that um, we're going to have to understand how people are going to adjust and interact with the machine learning, with the artificial intelligence. And that might be what's drawing women to the field, is this idea of there's a human component, a human element, a human impact to it. So I'm, I'm curious, while we see cyber being much more male-dominated, artificial intelligence is, is starting to look much more balanced. And so I'm, that is one thing I'm tracking, is the evolution of that.
1: As you, as a technology veteran, see controversies bubbling up around companies like Uber, um, and they're not the only ones. We see now, because blogging and medium is a lot more popular people are freer to tell their stories without having to um, get past a media gatekeeper When, when you see really these horror stories of how female engineers are treated within organizations does that sound familiar based on your rise up through the ranks or does it feel very different from your experience
0: yeah I think that for me um i maybe was was very fortunate. I always felt that if you carried yourself a certain professional way and you had a lot of confidence in what you were doing, and maybe you also searched for the right managers and mentors um that uh you know you you were able to kind of be a rising star in a company regardless of gender um but I, I think you know, maybe it was, is, it was really being thoughtful about those type of decisions, and especially when it came to, you know, if you had a choice of manager, if you had a choice of direction, if you um, selected your mentors um, properly, that they would help guide you through any situations. Um, but I do think that, you know, diversity is a topic and making sure that it's um, not only race, it's not only... Um, you know, gender, I think it's diversity in ideas and in personality and skills. I mean, the thing that would more so, in, in some ways, concern me is am I surrounding myself and building a company where we have enough, enough different points of view, mm-hmm. where people aren't afraid to challenge me as CEO if they're maybe not 100% in agreement with a direction or an idea? So I think diversity takes many different forms and shapes. And almost that diversity of thought, of, uh, of approach, um, of how we're, our brains are wired, that's the diversity that's probably harder to get right in terms of balance.
1: What's been your strategy for continuing to get smarter in highly technical areas like cybersecurity that are changing all the time? How much of it is reading? How much of it is people?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think one thing, and, and being that I'm hiring so many uh, relatively new graduates, the part you don't really maybe understand when you first graduate is you're not done. You know, it's it's about lifelong learning, and it's an easy term to throw out there, but it's different to actually live it and to take it to heart. And I think what I did find, especially being in technology, but I'm sure across all different disciplines, you have to be passionate about lifelong learning. And you know, when I first got into the, the venture capital side of things, I knew I was interested in how math and machine learning can make a difference across different areas. I wasn't sure if I was going to be interested in applying that to genomics, which I have a lot of passion in, mm-hmm. or whether it was going to be cybersecurity, a big unsolved problem, or even emerging areas like augmented reality mm-hmm. and virtual reality. So what I had to be willing to do is be able to Dive in all those different areas and learn. And in terms of how you learn, today I, I feel especially as I spend so much time on airplanes, I actually end up spending a lot of time um, taking online classes from Stanford. Really? In fact, I'm taking one right now on on some new advanced machine learning uh, by a guy named Andrew Ng, and it's um, you know it's a great way to uh, spend time while you're on a plane, but also to just keep diving in deeper into some, some new emerging areas. So I think that the whole lesson of lifelong learning can't be underestimated. What else? Well, I think in, in terms of other areas, sometimes it, it is going to conferences. Now, in the areas of cyber, um, I, I think at last count, I, there's probably roughly 500 cyber conferences in the world a year <laughs> right now. So you have to be selective about which ones to go to. But I think the important part of that is you you get to interact with experts in the area, but you also get to interact with your potential customers. And it's equally important not only to have the expertise, but to understand from a communication perspective which concepts resonate with them and which don't. You know, So being able to actually be face-to-face and talk about an, an idea or a concept or a product and see what their reaction back is. You know, yeah. what, what what clicked with them and what didn't. So I, I think you know part of it is not only growing your own education, but also going out there and kind of providing some of that education and making sure the, the market is kind of coming along for the ride with you.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Ten years ago, some companies, Cisco, chief among them, was trying to sell us this idea of telepresence. You don't need to travel anymore. You can just sit in a room with these big, high-resolution screens, you know, look at the screens, there's a camera embedded in them, and you'll get a quality of communication that's the same as if you were in the same room as the person. It doesn't seem to have worked.
0: Yes, by the amount of air miles I'm uh, spending, <laughs> I would concur that that didn't work. Why, um,
1: Why not?
0: You know, I, I think there's something about, um, even though this is in the technology industry, there's something about the human connection mm-hmm. that we're able to make, uh, you know, one of the things that we do at Darktrace is we do these thirty-day free trials of our product, and and many times I attend as many of those um, meetings as I can, and it's mainly to see how people are reacting when we say, you know, we found this type of you know emerging threat, and let's say, you know, the hardest threats to report are insider threats, because you're you're saying that some employee or some partner or customer or, or supplier they trusted that had access to their network is potentially doing something wrong. Right. And those are difficult conversations to have and ones that I think are important sometimes to have in person. So there's just that type of trust and, and sincerity of communication and commitment you know, to, to customers um, that is hard to replicate if I were just sitting on a speaker phone or on a Skype session. I
1: know I can relate to that. Like I, I don't do this podcast over the phone. I've, I've always sat down with the person because there's something about <laughs> the low latency, high resolution nature of actually being there that you can't replace. Where did you learn communication? What was your kind of laboratory, your most intense experience and figuring out how to relate to people.
0: That's a that's a, a rather tough one. Um, I think in terms of...
1: <laughs> Team sports, big family? Yeah,
0: um, <laughs> well, I think in, in communication, so one thing I've noticed, especially growing up on the East Coast and then moving to the West Coast, on the East Coast, and, and I, I grew up in a Scottish and English family. Um, my husband grew up in a large Italian family. <laughs> it's perfectly acceptable to talk at the same time as each other, and still comprehend the conversation. (laughs) And when I moved to the West Coast, I noticed um, it was actually more, you know, one person spoke at a time. So (laughs) I noticed there's some differences in communication styles and skills. There's also
1: a bluntness on the East Coast, right? That some people can mistake as rudeness, but it can be pretty sincere. Whereas as you move West, sometimes you get more politeness, but less sincerity.
0: Uh, absolutely true. I think you know on the East Coast there is um, a, just a, a directness in communication and style, and it's something that I've actually tried to retain, um, even though I've been on the West now for two decades. I think it, it is important to just you know cut to the chase um, and and be quite you know direct. Um, it's also interesting because I've spent the last decade of my life commuting to London, so I spend as much time probably in New York and San Francisco as I do London as well. And you see, yeah, another communication style there.
1: There are all kinds of jokes about people in London not saying exactly what they mean.
0: What, what also, though, is as is, is, is important as um, things like directness and communication style is humor. And I think that's been something I've really learned a lot, actually, from London, is the, the kind of dry sense of humor and how that's important as part of the communication so I guess you know there's the business communication, but within that, that's also you know trying to make sure you're tuning into the the local humor as well.
1: What were some of your formative social experiences? I'm going to keep hitting on that. I don't know. Were you were you involved in sports? Were you involved in debate teams or student government or Greek organizations or anything?
0: Yeah, first and foremost was definitely competing in gymnastics, and mm-hmm. I. Um, you know, started gymnastics probably at age four, and I think I was one of the youngest kind of team captains ever in, in gymnastics around age 13. Uh, and so I, I definitely think that had a, a, a profound effect in terms of social interactions. Um,
1: How so interesting, because you mentioned dance, you mentioned gymnastics. I've never studied either, but I conceive of them as being largely solitary, It's like you're paying attention to perfecting what you're doing, and you've got a coach, and there are other people involved maybe, but it's mostly about you.
0: So what's interesting in gymnastics, and whether you look at the, um, what was it, the Fantastic Five and now the kind of Fab Four. four, Magnificent (laughs) Seven, there are are
1: all sorts of. What's
0: interesting with gymnastics, and, and it's one of the things I really liked about it, it's equal parts individual and team sport. Uh, at an individual level, you are competing for being number one on beam or number one on floor. Um, and that's really important. But at the end of the day, the team score outweighs the individual. Hmm. And so it's that nice balance of you know, having to, to work with and coach and inspire and, and help your teammates while also perfecting your own performance. And I think that, that makes some sports like that a bit unique. Uh, in fact, one of the things I, I look for as I hire folks into Dark Trace now is about 80% of the college graduates I hire did collegiate sports, and really? I, I think that's a big part of it. Is making sure there's that kind of healthy competition, but also teamwork and camaraderie, and and that's uh, and it's from all different sports. I we just hired actually an Olympic diver, and we have a, um, an Olympic fencer, um, a female hockey player. Uh, <laughs> You know, just you name it, we're, we're a sports conglomerate.
1: Is that because you're looking for sports or because you're just looking for something that correlates highly with sports?
0: I think in certain disciplines, for example, in the um, in sales, um, right. having having a sports background has been very beneficial. But in addition to that, it's the discipline. If you can carry yourself at a collegiate sports level in parallel with keeping a 3.8 GPA at a top school, Right. Uh, you know, you're you're quite quite disciplined, and I think that's important to carry over into the workplace. The fact that you probably have a really good work ethic, as well as that team camaraderie, and also that innate sense of um,
1: thriving on competition. How long did you pursue competitive sports?
0: So from age four until uh, I actually started college at 16, and unfortunately the school I went to did not have a gymnastics team. So I actually moved in in my spare time and started coaching um, young girls. Actually, they were age five and up, Wow. and so I, I stuck with it for quite a bit while as kind of a, a, a side, side hobby.
1: How did you end up starting college at 16?
0: Uh, you know, it's um, one thing I kind of look back at now. Um, for some reason, I was in a real hurry. Um, I just felt like I couldn't wait to college, get to college, and then I couldn't wait to, to get to work, Um, And it's probably one thing if I had to change anything, I'd look back and kind of say, why was I in such a rush? Um, You know, maybe I I could have extended my kind of childhood years and my teen years a bit longer. Um, But I just had this sense of um, there was always uh, I really wanted to get to work. I really enjoyed it. I think from, you know, just um, from a young age being exposed to what it was to get that sense of satisfaction and fulfillment from work. And then, of course, to, to earn a living, which to me also meant it bought you independence and some level of freedom as to what you wanted to do and how you wanted to live your life.
1: Who are you measuring yourself against? Do you have older siblings? Did you have older friends? Why were you Why were you trying to move so fast?
0: So I, I have spent some time trying to think about this. I actually have a younger brother hmm. uh, who's also in the tech industry and uh, so I, I don't think I was, uh, you know, chasing after anyone in particular, or had someone I was trying to catch up with. But probably um, around the time I was uh, about to go into high school, maybe even a little bit before that, um, my father, being he worked at institutional investor, had a concept called generation financing, and he sat me down. It was kind of one of those serious talks, mm-hmm. and he said. Um, you know uh, yeah yes you know I, my father made good money doing what he was doing and he said you know someday though i'm going to retire and you're going to become responsible for us <laughs> and i think that all of a sudden i said wow i'm going to have to support my parents and it was just kind of eye opening now in reality he had a pension and he had plenty of money but I think it was a really good life lesson that he wanted to instill in me right. was the fact that I was going to have to you know, go to college, get really good grades, get a really good job, and support other people, which is kind of interesting because I think probably, especially if you go back to that point, it was more usually instilled in men than women.
1: Yeah. How old were you in that conversation?
0: I'd say age 12.
1: Okay. And have you talked to him about it? Why, why, do you, why did he do it? Uh,
0: he actually fundamentally believed in it. Um, you know, I think did for he, him, he always his said... his parents have
1: the same conversation it, with him at I age I don't 12. know.
0: He actually said to me, he goes, I don't understand why companies in financial services don't grab a hold of this generation financing idea. He mm-hmm. goes, to a certain degree, you know, if you look at Asian culture, it does exist in other oh, yeah. cultures. And America, it's never really taken hold. So for him, it was just a fundamental belief that he had that... Uh, generation financing should be something that's uh, not only maybe limited to some Asian societies but also here in America hmm.
1: how does that concept of looking out for who's coming not only who's coming behind you but who's ahead of you does that affect the way you manage or structure a company at all I mean you've got employees who have been there longer you've got employees who have been there a shorter period of time you've got older employees a lot of younger employees because mm-hmm. you're uh, hiring right out of college.
0: I think what it does instill in you, if you have that sense that you're, you're, you're in some way responsible for other people's livelihood, that is in a way what being a CEO and, and being a good manager is. You, know, you want to steer this company to grow and to be successful because you know maybe you start with ten people and that company is fulfilling the livelihood of families of those ten people but if that company can grow to 400 people where we are now and then into the thousands and tens of thousands that's a lot of people's livelihoods that you know can be built off of that one company so i think it does translate into you know becoming a good ceo because that that is part of it
1: you uh, we were talking a bit before about the importance of face-to-face communication how certain types of information is passed back and forth most efficiently in the analog way. Is there any parallel there to what we're gonna see happen in security over time? Because you're using machine learning, artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. to uh, perceive digital threats inside an organization. But so often when we talk about security, we talk about um, how it's the people that are the weak link. It's, you know, social engineering that ends up being the downfall of how the bad guys get in. So I think there's a lot of
0: talk right now about educating people not to click on links and, you know, what spear phishing is about. And then the next type of attack will come and there'll be a whole another wave of education about what that attack is like. Um, and I think looking forward, it's likely that, We won't only have these kind of people-oriented attacks, like clicking on links, but where we see this going is the attackers themselves are going to start using the artificial intelligence. Hmm. So today, in a way, you've got human hackers, human attackers, human defenders. Now where we're trying to transition to is some of those attacks are becoming more automated. Ransomware is a great example. It moves so fast that it's hard for humans to keep up with.
1: And ransomware is basically where somebody might send you an email with a malicious link, but then they take over your computer, encrypt, lock down all your files and say, hey, if you ever want to see your data again, give me 500 bucks.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And that, that type of attack is outstripping humans' ability to move fast enough. For example, let's say... That attack hits your computer at 3 a.m., right? Well, you're you're probably, if you don't have 24 by 7 security monitoring, you're not going to get to it fast enough. But the next phase, and we've started to see um, rare signs of this, but it's starting to pick up, is the fact that artificial intelligence itself will be how the attack is carried out. And what I mean by that is, if you think about the nation states we worry about from a cyber perspective,
1: Lately, Russia, China, Eastern Bloc.
0: Exactly. They're known for good mathematicians, good universities, and we have to assume they have AI labs just like our good academic institutions have artificial intelligence labs. So as those attacks themselves use artificial intelligence, the cyber defenders are also going to have to use artificial intelligence, and it's fast going to become a war of algorithms, machines against machines. So How's that
1: going to work. I mean, I I can think of a number, I can imagine a number of different kind of interesting science fiction-y ways. It it seems conceptually that finding a mark is going to be the thing that artificial intelligence is best at. Here's the, the type of person who's most likely to fall for that, so we'll focus in on that person. Or maybe a bot that pretends to be a person in a dating service and can actually carry on a pretty realistic feeling conversation, enough to extract personally compromising information. How do you think it might work?
0: So those, those certainly are examples of, of types of attacks we could see. In addition to that, though, the attack we have seen uh, in the real world was one where the uh, attack got inside a company network and the artificial intelligence started to look around and try to figure out what humans were doing on the network so it could blend in. Mm. And while today we're used to talking about cybersecurity as people stealing data, what's even more worrying is if they subtly change data without us knowing about it. Right. So that's where this artificial intelligence could become more concerning, to actually get inside of corporate networks, blend in long enough so that it can't be detected and maybe change a couple account balances here and there. Maybe change information. Let's say it's an oil and gas company and they're drilling for oil on the ocean floor. What if you tell them the wrong coordinates of where to drill? Right. That's a pretty massive issue.
1: So, so it's that- a version of that, you know, that classic scene that we've all seen in the movies when Luke and Han go into the Death Star and the first thing they do is, you know, clobber the stormtroopers and put on their uniforms. You know, if the bad guys, the artificial intelligence, learns how to act like they belong in the network, they're going to be harder to spot. That's
0: exactly it. And luckily, and this is why, you know, what Darktrace is doing becomes so important, is when these attacks shift from these more manualish um, attacks and the game changes where they're all machine learning, artificial intelligence attacks... Um, This is going to be the only way to really defend those type of of issues and networks. So, um, it's early days. Um, In fact, we recently uh, launched a a new technology that allows the computer to fight back, so the machine fights back. (laughs) Um, And it's interesting, it reminds me a bit of thinking about what we're going through with autonomous vehicles, so the self-driving car. You know, the first time you sit in one of those, I'm sure we're gonna grab for the steering wheel and wanna hit the brake and it's not gonna be there and we're not gonna have control. And that's kind of what we see when you roll out this type of technology. Humans still wanna be able to confirm the action the machine is going to take. And that's kind of the phase that we're at right now is what we call human confirmation. The fact that um, it's gonna take time for the humans to trust the machines as we move forward in these type of autonomous areas.
1: My thanks to Nicole Egan. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, YouTube. I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC. And from you. Next on the podcast, billionaire Tom Siebel is the founder of C3IoT. He's even better known for founding Siebel Systems, a software powerhouse that Oracle bought for nearly $6 billion. Tom talked to me about what keeps him going, even after he was trampled by an elephant in Tanzania eight years ago, and doctors said, wrongly it turned out, that he'd never fully recover. Go ahead and subscribe to Fort Knox now on your iPhone's podcast app or Google Play. It's quite a story. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Fortnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you